Welcome to the Fountain Cause. We have found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael the Man. I'm behind the machine. And to my right, your left is Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way across the airwaves, it's Peter, under the PC, under the person of Christ. And we are tiny today in the corner. And you know why that is? You can probably already see by the all my tabs open and ads everywhere from all these free Bible <laughs> softwares that are out online. We are going through a super heavy scripture episode. So if you don't like the Bible, um, you should stay on and like our video anyways. This is going to be a very Bible-heavy episode because um, I don't think we've had one recently, a really heavy mm -hmm. Bible episode. Um, and if you've listened to the Found Cause enough, you'll know that uh, I despise philosophy. Um, I really do. I don't like philosophy that is not bounded specifically and strictly in the scripture. And so I think sometimes when we are responding to Mormons and atheists and Eastern Orthodox and whoever else, we get caught in philosophical conversations because they usually care less about the bible they really care about like what their daddy says or what the big guy with the big hat says or you know whoever insert your group here so they talk a lot about philosophies and just general arguments like that we would like to dig into god's word and sebastian suggested today's episode topic which is uh, well why don't you intro it sure it is specifically on the wrath of god how does it how does that appear in the old testament the new testament and ultimately did god pour out his wrath for our sins on christ while he was on the cross which if you've been to sunday school i mean that's very generic yeah of course um generic gospel summarization is penal substitutionary atonement which means that there was a penalty penal that christ substituted for us um and therefore atoned for our sins by taking our the wrath that was due to us onto himself so that in and of itself you'd think would be non-controversial because it's super christianity 101 but for some groups millions of people out there within the christian christian group it is very controversial primarily i would say most catholics reject that take on i mean it depends on augustinians may not but they do reject that protestant take on penal substitutionary atonement and the non-imputation of sin once Christ saves you, same to Eastern Orthodox. They can testify yourself with your own interactions with Eastern Orthodox fellows. They do not like that. And there are many Protestants that are very uncomfortable with the idea of God, not just punishing Jesus, but pouring out his wrath for our sins upon him. Yeah. And I think it's because, and we're not really going to discuss the alternate views of atonement. We have a whole episode on this. So if mm -hmm. you want to see us discuss the other ones, you can see it. It got a lot of people mad. Um, <laughs> This is really going to be a positive presentation of penal substitutionary atonement, specifically the wrath of God being poured out on Christ. And the thing that makes people uncomfortable um, is that wrath is makes you uncomfortable already. Like you're worried about going to hell. You're worried about your relatives going to hell. I get it. Um, and then Jesus doesn't go to hell, right? He goes to Hades, but he goes on the positive side of Sheol, if you know your stuff, right? He goes to the, the good side of death and then proclaims to the evil spirits on the other side, the bad side of death, that they lost and then ascends to heaven with all the good guys up in heaven. And now we go to heaven when we die. Um, so he didn't go to hell. So did he really suffer God's wrath? Because isn't hell God's wrath? Um, yeah. I don't know if you have any other opening thoughts, Theodore, before we like just dive straight into the goods. All right. And you'll know, if you, if you also know our podcast, you know that Theodore has a non-traditional view of hell as far as um, its conditional immortality. At least he holds to that right now. Um, so this is a, we agree upon it, regardless of your view of exactly how hell works, that, that God's wrath got poured out on Christ. So without further ado, you can see there's a lot of tabs here. And please, I apologize for all the distractions of my browser. There's probably a better way to view this. Um, we're going to go through like a lot of different verses. 
and it's staged like this. The first theme, there's themes here. First theme is three Old Testament sections that show that there is that God is in the business of pouring out wrath on sinners. And a lot of times, not all the time, but a popular way that he likes to talk about his wrath is in a cup form. He fills a cup full of his, of his wrath with bad wine, and people have to drink the bad wine. So we're going to start with Jeremiah 25. You want to see your verse? You want to say it? Sure. From Jeremiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So not a good cup. And... Uh... Yeah. So not every cup, of course, there's some cups that are referenced in the Old Testament that are like good cups, you know, fill my cup until it overflows and uh, with good wine and uh, uh, the communion cup in the New Testament. But this cup is a, a bad cup to take. So not every cup is good. Not every cup is bad, but there is definitely a bad cup and God is in the business of dealing out his wrath. I mean, and even if you can continue reading on the same chapter, it says for those who were after Jeremiah looking through God lists all the nations that are going to suffer the wrath of God. Edom, Jerusalem, Judah, Assyria, Egypt, etc. It says, if you refuse to take it, you will take it. And I am bringing disaster in the city that bears my name. So again, it's not a good cup. That's the point we're emphasizing here. In the Old Testament, the cup of the wrath of God is very bad. You don't want to receive that. You want to seek mercy and forgiveness from Yahweh. Yeah. And there are some who like to separate the way God used to operate to the way he operates today. Same God, same operation form. Praise God for Jesus. So we're going to go still in the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, another reference of God doing this. He says, therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put you in the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you and make your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. Bad cup. Right, the, the cup, again, specifically referred to as the goblet of my wrath. And once you're done drinking of it, you're destroyed. So it's, it's a destructive, wrath-filled cup meant to destroy you, not meant to make you better, not meant to grow you as a person through hardship or anything like that. It's not refining fire. It is wrath that ends up in destruction. And even though we're speaking to mostly Christians here who, of course, take many of these things for granted, you know, it's common beliefs, that God has punished nations in the Old Testament. His punishments are just and appropriate based on the sin of the people in that country, like the destruction of Canaan, for example, Assyria after he invades, after the king of Assyria invades northern Israel. It is proportional and it is a just punishment for the evil that they have done. Yeah, it's terrible, but it is just. All right. Psalm 75, just another, our three Old Testament references to show you that throughout totally different kinds of scripture. So in the Psalms, which can be very poetic, in the prophecies, which can be symbolic, and in just straight up commands from God, like in Jeremiah 25, wrath and it being in a cup is a common symbol. Here's Psalm 75. It is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out. And all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. It's not a good cup. It's a bad cup. All right. So those, that's the Old Testament setting up a motif of a cup of wrath that God has. It's not the only cup. We already referenced this. But there is a cup of wrath that God pours out. And because it's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New, we can flip right into the New Testament and see the same motif being used. Specifically, 
to our to our topic today, which is Jesus. Jesus refers to the cup of wrath, him drinking it. Um, to those who don't think that he received God's wrath, this is an odd symbol. So uh, how about you read, Matthew? The whole from 20 to the end? Um, if you'd like. Sure. I guess it adds, for, it adds context. So, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, to Jesus, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. For it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. All right, so we've got the cup motif again. Um, but Jesus is saying, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Could be a good good drink, but in this way he's saying, like, are you even able to? Meaning it's going to be hard. It's going to be a bad cup. And they say, we are able. Of course, they don't know what kind of wrath is about to be poured out on Jesus, but they say, sure. Um, and he said, then you will drink my cup, but sit on my right hand and my left hand is not mine to grant. So you could say that this is just a hardship, that this this cup is just hardship. It's not necessarily God's wrath because they are going to be drinking this cup as well. And of course, James and John both go through hardship. Um, one martyrdom, the other exile. But... Uh, I think that Jesus is speaking about two cups here. Are you able to drink the cup I am going to drink, a bad cup? And then they say, we are able. And knowing they're stupid, he says, you will drink my cup. And what he means by that is my cup, right? So the not the cup that he is to drink, but the cup he's going to pour out for them. Meaning his blood, they're going to drink of that cup, but not the mm -hmm. cup that he has to drink, which is God's wrath. Because mm -hmm. he doesn't drink his own cup. You know, he doesn't drink of his own blood. He pours it out for people. Exactly. Moving along, uh, also in the Gospels, so still Jesus. Uh, Matthew 26, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, very. this is a very powerful prayer, and you get a glimpse into the conversation between the Son and the Father, which is, we don't have very, very many of those. So within that prayer that Jesus has on behalf of his, you know, all the people that will be saved and adopted right. into him, he does say... Going a little farther, as he's praying, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Okay. And then after that, Jesus starts, you know, being so um, caught up in emotion, I would say, from stress, grieving, whatever you want to call it, that he starts sweating blood. So this is... The context shows that this is not a pleasant thing that he is referring to. Yeah, and now just highlighting on this version, we happen to have pulled up um, Bible Hub, which has all these different translations. You will see some of the controversy here because NIV and the Greek and whatever will just say, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, generally. But New Living Translation, which is a uh, an added to translation, it's not like the most inaccurate out there, but it has some some commentary essentially built into it. It says, my father, if it is not, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, um, which is implying that the cup is full of suffering, which I don't deny that it's full of suffering, but it's actually the cup of God's wrath, as we showed the motif in the Old Testament, where it's for God to fill up a cup of wrath. And so they're assuming that it's just a cup of suffering. We would say it's not just suffering. It's actually the wrath of God that is suffering in the cup. So you can see right here live that it is um, weirdly controversial to say that God that Jesus suffered from the wrath of the Father. 
I'm looking at the Greek version of the text and it just says the cup. Yeah, the cup. Moving on to not just Jesus's words, but just to show that in the New Testament itself, the cup is still a motif that, that God is still using, right? Same God still using this motif, even into the future, which Revelation is a least future from Jesus book. Um, in Revelation 14, it says, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on his hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out full strength into the cup of his wrath. Then they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels. You know, this bad cup, bad cup of God's wrath is in the future. It's post-Christ even. So this is still a motif that God uses. He's got a cup and it's full of wrath. And for context too, the book of Revelation relies heavily on the reader understanding the Old Testament like the palm of your hand. It's not just some random bizarre imagery. It's tied to how God used to speak to the prophets through the prophets in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So that's why you see the motif of the candles, the two trees, and then also the cup of wrath. And then in, in a, a few chapters later, chapter 16, if I recall from, from memory, one of the angels starts pouring cups on the earth and they represent the or judgment bowls. yeah or bowls yes cups or bowls representing from the old testament too mm -hmm. judgment from god coming forth on people that rebel against him so not good not good to experience i mean yes um, I know we're on a rampage, Theodore, so I want to give you space to talk right after this next verse. <laughs> Isaiah 53, um, this is a super famous prophecy. Isaiah 53 is a, longer than what we're about to quote here um, about Christ. It's all talking about Christ. Um, and it specifically has a line in it that I think, I think puts the issue to rest because it is prophesying what the role of Christ will be. And it specifically says this, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt, I'm reading King James, sorry. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So not only does it please the Lord to bruise him, but he's going to raise him up like this. First of all, it's clearly talking about Jesus. And two, it's not that the Lord abandons him when he is pleased to, to crush him, to, to bruise him, but he does. The Lord, Yahweh, bruises him, Jesus. So this I think makes plain that that God pours out his wrath on Jesus as was prophesied and how he actually does in reality. And as a result for the wrath being poured on him, he is therefore an offering for sin because he's taking the wrath upon himself as a propitiation. Right. And that's what we're about to get. So we've, we've established here um, with about half these verses that in the Old Testament, God absolutely has a cup full of wrath. Then in the New Testament, Jesus talks about taking that cup of wrath that also in the New Testament Revelation, God is still pouring out his wrath on the wicked. And lastly here, that it is prophesied that the Messiah was going to take this cup of wrath, this, this bruising, this crushing from God himself. Not just the suffering involved, but the actual like wrath from God that's due to sin. That's all establishing that it's a problem, that Jesus does take it, but why does he take it? Like, what's, what's the mechanism? How is this forgiving the sins of the world? Why can't Jesus just be like, I forgive you all or why can't he just die and raise again and be like did it i die like why did he have to die so gruesomely why did he have to die as a propitiation for sin that's really the next half of these these verses we're going to discuss because some people again we're not going to get in detail on this but some would say that just his death was to show us that it was cool and neat we just reacted to spirit science talking about this um it was cool and neat that he died 
um, even though he didn't have to, and that we should also be martyrs like that, and that he he did it, you know, he was good to the end, and that's why his death is important, which, I mean, I guess that's cool. I mean, that's like an extra bonus, I suppose, to the, that Jesus died, but the main reason he died was to pay for sin, and considering his prayer in the garden where he says, God, please take this cup for me, if it's at all possible, that was absolutely necessary, right? It wasn't just like nice to have, it was absolutely necessary. So what world would God not take away the suffering of Jesus if it wasn't necessary? And it was just like a cool symbol, yo, right? <laughs> There's a lot of ways you can coolly symbolize doing things to the uttermost without having to die a, a terrible death for sin. Precisely. Any thoughts, Theodore, before we plow forward? Probably not. Got plenty of verses. Give me an amen, brother. Go for it. All right. Amen. Amen. Thank you. All right. Leviticus 16. So this is where we get into what is Jesus doing? Like, why would God's wrath be on Jesus? Why was that necessary? Here's a shadow. And if you don't know your Old Testament, New Testament connections, a lot of the Old Testament law, the original law that God gives to the Israelites, is to shadow the coming of Christ. So it's a symbol of things that aren't Jesus, but show the way Jesus will work even better in the New Testament. One of those shadowed laws is the way that the Israelite community is supposed to have their high priest lay his hands on the head of a goat, and that goat would bear all the inequities of the people for that year, and then he'd let the goat out um, out into the wilderness, and that the goat would bear the inequities. So the goat would be guilty for all the sins of the people. Now, there's many sacrifices for sins in the Old Testament, so I don't think this is the only way they were um, shadowing Jesus's payment, but this is a way that Jesus clearly takes on the sins. He doesn't just die for the sake of sins, but he takes on our sins. He substitutes for us. Um, you want to read it? And before I do, yes. It is not just us saying that Jesus was a shadow, no, sorry, the sacrifices were a shadow of what Christ would do. It is Paul himself, in amongst his letters, the author of Hebrews, who I will controversially say it's Luke, written down by Luke. I don't know, some people would get really uh, into that. It's Barnabas, you fool. <laughs> Yes, and the revelation from God holds that Christ is the great fulfillment of all these shadows that were pointing to him. So it's not just us making this case. It is the New Testament making that case for us. We're just presenting it to you. Sorry, for context, we're going to read from Leviticus 16. There were two sacrifices that were meant to be presented. I'll just read it for, for context. And from starting from verse 8, after Aaron cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat, he shall present the goat chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement by sending it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So you have two. One has to shed blood and the other one is an atonement still for sins, presented alive. But now we're going to read how that happened with this live goat. How was it an atonement? Verse 20. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he is to bring forward the live goat. Then he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities and rebellious acts of the Israelites in regard to all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away to the wilderness by the hand of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their iniquities into a solitary place, and the man will release it into the wilderness. Um, there's, again, a lot of sacrifice. Like you can see there's bulls 
blood is being combined here in the middle um what we didn't reference so like there's a lot of sacrifices here so it's not to say that the goat is the only sacrifice that's symbolizing jesus but like what, why we're quoting this is that um when the goat takes on the sins of the community it is said that the goat will carry on itself all their inequities into a solitary place that the man releases the wilderness so like wasn't just the um god didn't just want people to pay a price like you know goats are a valuable commodity and so or and bulls and grain and all the other sacrifices are a valuable commodity so it's not just that people are burning these things as a way of um hurting themselves to to atone for their sins the the sins themselves are put onto the object of sacrifice here in this case the goat so it's not just that the people are hurting because they had to get rid of a goat it's that the goat itself is now got all the sins of the community on it, which again is shadowing how Christ is not just um, uh, we are sad that he died example for us. He is actually taking on the sins that would have been ours, just like this goat does. So and that's a really important specification because if you think that Jesus just died as an example for us, um, you still have all, like your sin is still a problem of yours. And we're going to get into that later. But if you don't have a way of paying for God's wrath for sin, it still exists. As we just talked about, the wrath of God is going to come on people who don't accept Christ, who, who aren't Jesus's, and you will have to find some way to pay for that. There's only one way, and it's with your death and banishment to hell. So, like, you don't want that. That's the whole message of the gospel is that that's bad and there's a way out of it. Um, Jesus needs to pay. There needs to be some payment for our sin. You can't just... Um, not pay for it, right? So if Jesus doesn't pay for it, nobody does, right? You pay for it. All right. Precisely. And again, with the full revelation of God that we have now, we look back at these saying, these things are pointing to what God would do through his Messiah later, a thousand, a thousand or two thousand years later. So these details are, are important because they are telling us what God would do when this was all fulfilled. We're going to see that in Hebrews. I've been talking about Hebrews. Hebrews 9. and New Testament book explaining the Old Testament sacrifices in light of Christ. Right. And then on the note, you saw two ingredients in that sacrifice that we read. There was blood to cleanse and also a creature, a thing, a living being had to take on the sins of people. You had to remove your sins and put it on something else. So that's the mechanism that, that God decided to establish. Criteria. Exodus twelve five: your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. Mm-hmm. AKA Jesus, unblemished, yeah. um, male, and basically the equal year old for human versus lamb. <laughs> yeah, well, a year old meaning. <laughs> like 30 years old versus one. Basically flawless, mature. right? Hadn't lived long enough to hurt itself or do anything or gotten too old to bear babies, right? Jesus was in the prime of his life when he oh, died, okay. right? He was 33, still fertile, still healthy, right? Like, had his whole life ahead of him. I agree. And without sin. Yep. Hence why he's the perfect sacrifice. So in verse 11 talks, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not part of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. You can read this on your own. It talks about how the blood of calves cannot perfect because it was a repetitive system, hence pointing to something greater that God would do. Now going down to verse 
20, yeah, we're 21. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels used in worship, the high priest. According to the law, in fact, nearly everything must be purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Other versions are no forgiveness of sins, just for, for the context. In Spanish, at least, it has that. And then, verse 25, he did not, nor did he, Christ, enter heaven to offer himself again and again, as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So everybody that, that believes, anybody, um, Christian supposedly or non-Christian, that believes that you can, you can get sin forgiven without the shedding of blood, you are mistaken. And anybody who believes that you have to repeatedly do things to pay for sins, so you, you steal a candy bar, you have to pay for that sin with six Hail Marys, you kill your sister, you have to you know, be put to death. Um, while I might agree with the temporal punishment there, it doesn't actually pay for your sin against God there because you disagree, disobeyed against God. Um, there needs to be shedding of blood. Um, so, and if it's yours, you're going to hell, right? Because you, you're unatoned for. You, you are the one paying for your own sins. It's death here and it's death in the next life. And I do want to conclude because this is how he summarizes. Luke summarizes. I want to say Luke. Just as a man is appointed to die once and after that to face judgment, so also Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Again, to take upon himself, based on the context from the Old Testament sacrifice, he took the sins upon himself. That's how he bore them. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly await him. So, I mean, at least for this, I can see the second time that he appears, and he already bore sin. Mm -hmm. And now he's coming for a different purpose, his second coming. So all I have to say, Hebrews, I think the whole book really is talking about how the old sacrifice is shattered, Christ coming. So if you want to understand why it is necessary that God, Jesus, pays for sins specifically like this, that sins can't just be forgiven for nothing, um, exactly how Jesus is fulfilling these shadows, Hebrews is the book for you. Um, that's why we're so detailed here in Hebrews 9. But we're explaining here that, once again, to review, God has wrath. He uses a motif of pouring it into a cup that he's going to pour in the nations. It's good that he does this. Jesus talks about taking this cup, that he drinks it, he's going to drink of it. The cup is still being poured out on the wicked in the New Testament in Revelation. Um, that, that the Old Testament in Isaiah 53 specifically refers to the Messiah as being crushed by God. So it is God's wrath in him, not just suffering, not just undue affliction. It is God's wrath. And then Leviticus talks about mechanisms for paying for sin that put the penalties for sin on the object of sacrifice. And then Hebrews 9 explicitly explaining how the, Jesus took the cup of God's wrath is the sins of the community of his people as a sacrifice, just like the Old Testament scapegoats or other sacrifices were killed. So all that is explaining exactly how Jesus did indeed bear God's wrath on our behalf. But let's really hammer it home with one, two, three, four, five, six more verses that talk about explicitly the consequences of this whole reality, that, that there is wrath from God, that Jesus pays for it, Let's, let's flesh it out. I'm going to throw it to you, Theodore, with a Luke 22 verse, if you still have it up. Otherwise, I can read it myself. Um, before the episode started, we were all brainstorming with different verses here. Theodore was very helpful. So I don't know if you have it up. Otherwise, I can read it. 2237? Yep. For I tell you that uh, this which it is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with uh, the transgressors. 
for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. So what does that mean to you, Theodore? Why is that an important verse? Um, this was number, not that Jesus had committed any sin, but that our sin had been taken, he had taken our sin upon himself such that he would be numbered with the transgressors and suffer the death of a transgressor, uh, like even someone disobeying the law in Roman world. Exactly, right. And this is another, in case you're wondering, another quote from Isaiah 53. So same place where it says God was pleased to crush him. It says that he would be numbered with the transgressors. And here's Jesus quoting 53, talking, saying it's talking about himself explicitly. And like you just said, Theodore, that he was, he was going to be numbered with the transgressors. He, he was actually getting charged with sin, um, which the proper punishment for sin is God's wrath. Just in case you need extra oomph there in the audience um, for Jesus bearing God's wrath. Then Ephesians 5, another one from you, Theodore, I think, if you have it. Otherwise, I can quote it. Yeah. Five six. Mm -hmm. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I, I think, I don't know what your take is on this theater. I think this is important because um, there are there are several. I would say they're, they're fewer than some of our opponents, but there are some opponents of ours that would say this. Yes, God has wrath. Yes, it's for sin. Yes, it was poured out on Christ. But, and we've talked to people um, from Eastern Orthodox to Universalists on this podcast about this topic, but they say, Jesus has now paid the price for everyone. So no, it used to be that people were under God's wrath. But since Jesus paid for everybody's price, now nobody's under God's wrath because Jesus paid for everyone. But here's Paul explicitly saying in Ephesians 5 that there is, God still has wrath. Yes, it's poured out on Jesus for those who believe in Jesus. But, but he says this, for you, this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ. And let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So, one, for our Eastern Orthodox friends or anybody, or Universalist friends who say that everybody, pure or impure, receives the inheritance of the kingdom, and it's just whether or not they like it or not that makes them in heaven or hell, you're wrong. So, this is Paul. Um, but in addition, God's wrath still comes on those who are disobedient. So Christ only takes the wrath for those who are his, not those who are still disobedient. It should be an important thing for us to remember. Like the, the payment, the wonderful payment of the gospel is not um, universalist. It's to those who believe in Christ. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm flipping on to John 3. So we're going to keep hammering the home. This same point, so it's not just in, from Paul, it's not just from Christ himself, it's also from John, another apostle, different context. It says, um, John 3, 36 years, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Hallelujah. But whoever rejects the Son will not see, the li will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And I think this is like an excellent, excellent verse to our topic today because not only does it Sure, the, the, the gospel, the simplest gospel, which is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's, that's what we all are aiming for, right? Eternal life instead of eternal death. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains mm -hmm. on him. Meaning, 
that those who have eternal life, those who believe in the Son, had wrath, but they know it no longer remains on them. Like the scapegoat, it has been placed on Christ instead. So again, the wrath, God's wrath placed on Christ, not on us, penal, substitutionary atonement. And for those who don't have Christ, those who don't believe in the Son, God's wrath remains on them. No universalism here. The wrath is still coming from God. It's still just, and it still punishes the wicked. Yeah, I was just reading, ad tu theu meni apafton. So, meaning, yes, the, the wrath, the same word used to communicate in the Septuagint, the Hebrew, you know, wrath of God mm-hmm. is the same word used here. So, it's like, wow, it's almost as if God does not impute sin on those he has saved. Which is another Bible verse, in case you're wondering. Uh, which we don't even have. We're not even quoting it. Our, our slew of verses, we're not even quoting We have now. so many. <laughs> yeah, so many verses. But there is a Bible verse, let me assure you, that says, um, I'm happy as a man, I think it's Romans 3? In Romans. Quoting a psalm, too. Um, that quotes a psalm. Psalm 21? I don't remember. I'm, I'm probably going to misquote these. Whatever. There's a psalm that, that is quoted in Romans that says, How happy is the man whose sin is not imputed to him, um, meaning not charged against him, which if you are somebody who believes that after you believe in Christ, this is for a totally different set of crowd, after you believe in Christ, you are paid for, you get baptized, Jesus pays, you're clean for, your Jesus' blood has cleaned you, but then as soon as you sin again, as soon as you steal a candy bar again, you need to give those those 10 Hail Marys because now that sin is not paid for, right? You paid for all your other sin, but any sins you do after that, you have to pay for yourself, um, you are going against those kind of verses that say, happy is the man whose sin is not imputed to him. If you can't have sins imputed to you because now you're in Christ, that means no sins can be imputed to you. Not the candy bar after you've been baptized, not the candy bar before Christ, not the murder after Christ, not the murder before Christ. Now, should you murder? No. Is it a sign that you probably aren't regenerate if you continue to sin viciously after Christ? Probably. Um, but we know, and First John talks all about this, that believers, because we're still in the flesh, still sin. And you still have an advocate. That's why we got it. Jesus is constantly mediating for us our um, salvation to God. Mm-hmm. Precisely. All right, we keep keep tracking. Romans two. Romans is a great book talking about exactly how Jesus pays for our sin, exactly how God's justice works. Again, another great reference, like Hebrews, if you want a, a quick reference book. But Hebrews two has this verse. Is this from you? Is this from you, Theodore? Actually, it's Romans two. I think it's Theodore. Yeah. Not me. Yeah. Do you have it Hebrews up? Otherwise, two? I can quote it. Yeah. No, I don't. Okay. Romans two. Um, but because of Wait, Romans, Romans 2, oh, sorry, right. maybe sorry, you go. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Point here being twofold. One, God's wrath still being mediated, still being put out on the wicked. So those who are universalists who think that he is not doing that anymore, he certainly is. Just another reference that, that he is. But two, you'll notice here that those who get eternal life are ones that do good works. I think we'd be remiss on an episode like this not to say this warning, that if you think that you earn salvation because of good works, because of verses like this, you are mistaken because it is true that those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, immortality, will give be given eternal life. But that is a descriptive of those who Jesus has paid for. It is not 
um, the things that earn you eternal life. It is describers, good people are the ones that are um, that, that are saved by Christ. Um, but it's not being good that saved you. It's Christ's blood that saved you, his payment for your sins that saved you. And because of that payment, you do good things. After you're born again, you're being sanctified, growing in holiness, and you display this desire to honor God, seek glory, and immortality. Even Paul will mention later in future chapter in Romans how those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So even if you're doing good things, you know, the president of China can do good things according to the law of God, but because he is not in Christ for now. Yeah, um, it's actually like he right knows. here. It's like the next paragraph, but yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, that's not exactly the one that hit him up. That's also gets to, yeah, gets okay. to the point precisely, precisely. So, uh, yes, in order for you to do truly good things that are honoring to God, you need to be in God's family. Mm-hmm. Those who are outside, as Paul points, inspired by the Holy Spirit, cannot please God. Yep. And then continue to Romans. It's another Theodore verse if you have it in Romans 5. Do you want to quote this one? He demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And this, I mean, what? how much more succinct can you get about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? That because we've been saved by his blood, we, we are reconciled. We're fully reconciled with God. So this, this is the gospel, and we call anybody listening to this to come out of false gospels because there are, because it's the key to life, there's a lot of attack on this doctrine from Roman Catholics, from the Eastern Orthodox, from atheists, from Jewish people, from liberal Christians. There's a lot of attack on this doctrine because, again, it is the core of the gospel. So don't be confused that there are many with similar but not the same gospels. If they have a different gospel than this, even if it's similar, they say Jesus died for you, but you still have to say six Hail Marys. Jesus died for you, but he also died for your neighbor who doesn't even believe in him. Those views are not the gospel. And if you believe those and you stand before God on judgment day and you say, okay, God, Jesus paid for me and I got all my Hail Marys and the treasury of the saints and Mary also is pretty good and she's bad in for me, you will be damned because you think you're being judged by your own works or by Mary's works. Mary failed just like we fail in sin. And so if you think that you're being judged by your own works at all in heaven, you will be judged wanting and be sent to hell. Do not stand before God like that. And if you think that you are saved just because you're a human being, you will fail. You'll go to God, God saying, okay, I'm, I'm human, you know, pay for me. And he'll be like, I never knew you depart from me, you worker of lawlessness and send you out in hell. So this is the gospel. This portion from Romans 5, it's all throughout the scriptures. It is the, the magnum opus of God's work. And that is that because he has justified us by his blood, we're saved from his wrath through him. That's the, the beauty is that our judge is also our deliverer. And so believe in him, believe in Christ, um, that we, we who were once enemies are now his friends. Mm-hmm. Not only friends, but sons and daughters. Yeah. All right. And just to kick that gospel point home, Colossians 2, again, just uh, we're flying all around scripture to show you that this isn't just pulled from Romans. It's not just pulled from the gospels. It's not just pulled from the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's all throughout scripture. Here's Colossians 2. It says this, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, 
trampling over them by the cross. I mean, there are a lot of great gospel messages in the scriptures, but I particularly like this one here, that when we were still evil, right? We were still dead in our sins. We were still uncircumcised, apart from God. Enemies of God. Enemies of God. God, not us, God made us alive with Christ. So not even just because of Christ, but with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. So note that here that um, we are not charged with sin. I think some would say that God doesn't actually charge anybody for sin, that he sees sins, but he generically pays for them all. Here, we, we had a charge of legal indebtedness against God, but he forgives us our specific st- sins, which stood against us and condemned us. So they specifically were condemning us and he has taken them away, nailing them to the cross. So the, the sins were nailed to the cross, meaning Jesus's death on the cross. That is what paid for our sins. That is what canceled our legal debt. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, both the human authorities that would oppress us, but also the authorities like death and, and the devil, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So that is the hope we have that anybody, I'm just going to go back to John 3, um, whoever believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And what you'll notice here, in case I'm just going to hit all the, the possible lies about the gospel, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You may think that means whoever thinks that Jesus is real has eternal life. Not true. Because whoever rejects the Son will not see his life. Rejecting doesn't just mean I don't believe in him. It means I don't like him. I don't want to follow his rules. I don't I don't believe in him. Like I, I don't appreciate him. I don't want to follow him. I won't make him my Lord. So demons, for example, obviously believe that Jesus is real. They've seen him. But they reject him. <laughs> so it's not that they reject that he exists. They reject him as their Lord. So they still have God's wrath on them. Any human who does this also has God's wrath on him. So we implore anybody listening today to believe in the Son, not just that Jesus is real or that he is God or that he exists or that he paid for sins, but that he is your Lord and then you will be saved. And the the call is high to the gospel. I was immediately thinking on Revelation when you read that verse from Colossians 2, Revelation 20, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And it talks about obviously that those whose names was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So to those who say that God doesn't judge you specifically for your transgressions against him, well, the law has actually tying it all together. In the Old Testament, the reason why it's so specific on what is a transgression against the law of God, against God, it's because you you do specific things to separate yourself from God. So it is specific. And those who are in Christ, whatever you may have done, Christ can, has infinite possibility to take all past, present, and future sins upon himself so that you may be reconciled with God. He took upon himself on the cross all the sins of all his children that lived pre-old and pre-Christ, the time of the apostles or so far in the last 2,000 years all those things upon himself so that those who believe in him who are his elect may have eternal life amen and that's why we do this episode that's why we talk about it this is I think again as I said in the very beginning we get caught in the mix of debating atheists and and false Christians and 
um, Hindus and whatever else, and we might mix some of the big picture, but we really wanted to re-emphasize why we defend against Roman Catholics who reject this doctrine, by the way. They reject penal substitutionary atonement, which is why I would say they are not Christians. They are apostates. They've left the church. They used to, as a church, hold to this view. Um, but as a reaction to the Protestant Reformation, they officially said it was evil and anathematized it. And so they don't believe that you can be a Christian and believe penal substitutionary atonement, which means they've made being a Christian anti-Christian. Um, same with uh, several other movements, uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, some Seventh-day Adventists, Hindus, atheists, you know, they don't believe in the sun either like this. That is what makes the gospel unique, and it's what we should hold to. And this is why we do this kind of podcast. And we say, and a big asterisk on that, if you believe in this, if you are persuaded that we have pointed out to you, not from our own just mere opinions, but go to the Word of God, look at this yourself. If you find yourself within any of these groups, and but you believe this, well, that's great, great that you believe in these things. And we also call you out that the groups are no longer faithful to God. They have straight away, we call you out and join a church that does advocate for these beliefs. Yeah, which there are many. We are we consider ourselves in the church global, so there are many agreeing churches, but like Sebastian goes to Presbyterian Church, I don't go to a Baptist church. Um, you go to a covenantal church, uh, Theodore, right? So, so we're not calling you to our specific congregation or our specific exact interpretation of the Bible, but we all have the gospel in common. So we call you who are in a, a non-gospel community right now, whether it's Roman Catholicism, whether it's atheism, whether it's Hinduism, we call you into um, some gospel-believing church, people who believe that Jesus pays for all your sins. All right. Theodore, any last comments? Oh, I think I'm good. All right. Well, that's why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my right has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And all the way across the airwaves, it's been... Under the PC. Under the PC. Thanks for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you got to go to foundcause.podbean.com and look at all of our episodes for downloading. You can download them, yeah. It's only audio only, though. You won't be able to see our tiny little faces or the scripture on the screen. So if you want to see that, you're going to have to go to YouTube or Facebook and subscribe. Um, we're done with shorts, by the way. I don't know if anybody was watching those shorts, but man, uh, there's some great viral shorts, um, but I think it kind of cannibalized our viewers. I'm not really sure because there's a lot less views in our regular views, maybe, maybe our regular videos, maybe because the shorts are just so good. Um, people are waiting for those. I'm not sure, but we might put them on pause, do a little test. We'll see. Uh, depends on what we're in the mood for, but hopefully you enjoyed those. And if you want like 30 shorts, they're out there on Instagram. They're out on Facebook. They're out on Reels. They're on YouTube. Um, they're everywhere. So enjoy. Until next time, we talk about something completely different. Maybe even a movie review? We'll see. Bye. Bye.